Good morning, church family. We are going to be in Psalms 90, 90, and that is on page 496 in the Bibles around the room. Um, when I finish, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, because truly this is the inspired breath of God that we get to read at our convenience every single day. It's just amazing. And when I say this is the word of the Lord, you're going to say thanks be to God, because we are so thankful that he left us this word. All right, Psalms 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are so loving to us, your children. Teach us to number our days, Lord, that we may have that heart of wisdom. Satisfy us with your love always, and may your favor be upon us. Teach us and humble us, Lord. Open our ears and our hearts to hear you speak through Matt today. Thank you for never changing and always loving. Bless the men and women in service to this country here and all over the world, both past and present. Protect them and give them wisdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Melanie. Well, good morning, church. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's an honor and privilege to be here this morning with you and to open up God's Word and see what it would say to us. And so, uh, first of all, happy Memorial Day weekend. Um, you know, Kyle already brought it up, but uh, Memorial Day weekend is not just something that we have to barbecue and go camping, but it's a time for us to honor those who have um, given their lives for our country and service to our country. And so um, I think this morning, this is a fitting psalm as we look at that, um, because it's a lament over uh, just death and sin in our lives. And so, um, you know, some of you might be mourning this morning.
because maybe you've lost loved ones who have fought in, for our country. And so um, we just want to thank you for that. Thank you for being here with us. And um, it's our prayer that God would comfort you in the midst of that this morning. And so as we uh, open up God's word this morning, we are in the book of Psalms. And so um, when we say that we're going through the book of Psalms, we're not going through all 150 Psalms. Um, instead, what we're trying to do through this study is to um, identify the redemptive story of God as seen in the book of Psalms. And so when we talk about the redemptive story of God, we're talking about the redemptive story throughout all of Scripture. And all of Scripture really has one main theme, and at the heart of it, it's the redemption of God's people through the person and work of Jesus. And so we see that played out through the book of Psalms. Martin Luther, he's a famous theologian, he had this quote to say about the book of Psalms. He says, the Psalter, or the book of Psalms, ought to be a precious and beloved book, if for no other reason than this, it promises Christ's death and resurrection so clearly, and pictures his kingdom and the condition and nature of all Christian life, that it might be well called a little Bible. In it is comprehended most beautifully and briefly everything that is in the entire Bible. In fact, I have a notion that the Holy Spirit wanted to take the trouble himself to compile a short book or a short Bible and book of examples um, of all Christian life for all saints so that anyone who could not read the whole Bible would here have anyway almost an entire summary of it comprised in one little book. And so that's what we have. And so when we talk about this redemptive story of God throughout the Bible, we break it down into four parts or four acts. And you see them up here behind me. The first one is creation. Oh, not that one yet. Bam. Uh, no, it's just the, the, the slide for the, the sermon series. Um, so the first one is creation. Then we have fall and then redemption and restoration. And so um, for the past several weeks, we've been focusing on um, the idea of creation by looking at God's creative power throughout the book of Psalms. And uh, this morning, we turn our attention to the fall. And so when we talk about the fall, we're using a theological term that represents the fall of humanity. Um, if you're new to church or unfamiliar with this concept, it, it really refers to the events that took place in Genesis chapter 3. And so in the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, we read that God created everything and that it was very good. On the seventh day, God rested from all the work that he had done. And we don't know how long that resting period went on for, but in our Bibles, it's only one chapter. Because when we get to chapter 3 of Genesis, um, that's when everything goes wrong. God had given humanity, that is Adam and Eve, everything that they need to, needed to flourish because he is a good God. And there was only one stipulation or one law that he gave them. And it's seen in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. And it's this. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In Genesis 3, we see the serpent who is the devil, convinced the woman that God's word was a lie and that his work was not good. 
the devil came to her and whispered lies to her, telling her, God knows you aren't as good as you could be. He knows that if you take matters into your own hands, you will be much better. You can be like God if you just eat the fruit that he told you not to eat. And she believed the lie of the devil and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband and he ate too. God told them that they were very good. They were made in his image after his likeness, but they didn't believe him. Instead, they believed the devil, the father of lies. God told them that they would surely die if they ate the fruit, but they didn't believe him. Instead, they believed the devil, that they wouldn't die. And as a result of their rebellion, sin entered the world and brought about death and destruction. Sin entered the world and brought about death and destruction. And that's why we refer to these events as the fall. In Psalm 90, we have the Psalm of Moses, and he's lamenting over the events of the fall. So Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. And so Moses has recorded thousands of years of history. He's the one that God used to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. And he's lamenting over the loss and death, over the effects of the fall here. And so as we move into our text this morning, my main point is that the fall affects us all. And so as we look at our text, we're going to break it down into three sections. The first section, verses 1 and 2, we're going to see God through the fall. In verses 3 through 11, we see the effects of the fall. And in verses 12 through 17, we're going to see hope in the fall. So let's look back at our text this morning. Starting in verse 1, Moses says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So the first thing that Moses does here is he addresses God as Lord. And this word Lord means king or ruler. It means judge and master. And God is that king and ruler, judge and master over each and every one of us and over all of life and all of creation. And that's kind of a frightening thought as we go through this psalm. We see Moses further describe about who God is. But he is the ruler of us. He is our master, our king. And so then, I don't want you guys to miss this, but he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. And so this word our is really significant because this is a corporate lament that Moses is leading the people through. This is for all of the people of God. We don't know why Moses wrote this or what events it's in response to, but we know that Moses and the people of God during the time of their wandering in the wilderness, they saw much suffering death, and tragedy in their lives. And so what Moses is doing here is he's reminding them that this is for all of them. As they're wandering through the desert, this is a lament for all of them. And it's a lament for all of us 
as we're wandering through life here and now. And so he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. God has been a shelter for his people. God has been a refuge is another way that this word could be translated. And so um, as we look at this, he is a refuge through whatever we are going to, going through, excuse me. As the people of God, he is our strong tower that we run into and are safe is what Moses is telling us. Um, If you guys have had your eyes open at all over the last couple of weeks, it's been raining a lot here, right? Um, And so I coach soccer, and uh, one of the things that has happened over the season, um, and it was really a couple weeks ago where one of these first storms happened, but you guys know these crazy Nevada storms where, you know, you can watch it move in, and then all of a sudden the skies open up and you're drenched in an instant, right? So we've had a couple of those lately. And so one of them happened on one of my soccer practices. And so we're sitting there, we're playing, having a scrimmage on the field up at Bud Beasley. And up there, you can overlook the whole valley, and I could just watch the storm coming across the valley. And I was like, oh, man, are we even going to get through practice? And, and so we got close to the end. We're like five minutes from the end of practice, and all of a sudden, just the skies opened up. And everybody that was on the field, my team, all the other teams, they ran to the school and got under the shelter that the school provided for them. And that's really what God is being described as here for us, is that he's our shelter, the place where we can run to and be safe. And so no matter what's going on in your life, that's what God wants to be for you if you're one of his people. I tell you what, like the last six months have been a hard six months for me. Um, You know, Kyle was talking about transition. I think I've cried more in the last six months than I have in the last six years. Um, And like one thing that has been constant through that is that God has been my shelter, my strong tower that I could run to and feel safe in the midst of everything that's going on. And that's who God is for us. And notice, it's not just at one point in time, but God is our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, God has been our shelter. He's been our refuge. Um, From eternity past to eternity future, God is our refuge and will be our refuge. In light of the fall and the events that took place in Genesis chapter 3, we can say it like this. God God was our refuge and dwelling place before the fall. He will be our refuge and dwelling place through the fall, and he will be our refuge and dwelling place when the fall is no more. And that's good. That's good news for us. God's nature and character is such that he doesn't change based on time or based on us and what we do. The book of Hebrews tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if he was our refuge in the past, or if he has been your refuge at any point in time here in the present, you can count on him being your refuge through to the future. And so we have this picture of God. And really, if we wanted to break this psalm down, we could break it down by these four words too, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This is who God created us to be. People that found our home and our dwelling place in him. But then we get to verse 3, 
and we get to the effects of the fall. In verse 3, Moses begins to lament two big themes that are effects of the fall, and they are sin and death. And so he starts in verse 3 by saying this, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. And so this is Moses calling back to what God said to Adam in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, when he was talking about the consequences of the fall. Because there in Genesis 3, God tells Adam that you are dust, and to dust you will return. Death is a consequence of the fall. Our lives are temporary. They're but a moment. And as I was reading through this text, I couldn't help but think back to our, our study through the book of Ecclesiastes. We looked at the, the temporary nature of this life. Our lives are a vapor. They wither away. And Moses laments this fact that death is something that is awaiting us all very poetically throughout these next verses. So if you look down in verse 5, he talks about how you sweep them away with a flood. Throughout our country right now, there are floods happening all over the place. And if you've watched any of the videos, you see cars getting swept away, trees getting swept away. And God's saying, that's how our lives are going to be swept away. Just like anything that's in the wake of a flood. Or he says that our lives pass away like a dream. And I don't know about you guys, but dreams don't last long. And half the time, I don't remember them when I wake up. And that's what God is saying our lives are like. And then this one that we can totally connect to, I think, living in the desert as Moses was living in the desert. He says, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. You know, we've been having all these great rains, and what are they doing? They're causing the grasses to spring up and grow, and the paras are nice and green right now, and I love that time of year. But I know that soon the sun's going to come out and scorch all those grasses, and they're going to be yellow and brown and ugly again, right? Like, that's just what we live in in the desert. And Moses is saying, that's what our lives are like. They spring up quickly, but they're gone just as fast. If you look down um, into verse 10, he says that our years are like, of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Moses was living with a generation in the wilderness who they were promised they wouldn't enter into the promised land. So he was seeing people live to only like 70 and 80 at that point in time. And so this is just his poetic way of saying that our lives are short. He even goes on to say that our lives pass like a sigh. And it's gone. And in comparison to God, look at verse 4. He says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Compared to God, our lives are, are just a blip. Moses wrote thousands of years of history in the first five books of the Bible, and they're but as yesterday to God. Or even shorter, as a watch in the night. And so death is something that awaits us all, and it's something that we all have in our future. And so when we think about this, 
it's really just kind of abysmal, right? I was like thankful to Kyle that I got to preach the uh, Ash Wednesday service and then this one too. I'm like, oh great, like all the death sermons is what I get to preach these days. I'm like, what's Kyle trying to remind me of here um, as he selects these things for me? Um, but like, as I, as I look through this, like it's abysmal. And so um, throughout Christianity, there have been tools that Christians have used to try and teach these truths to, to recent converts and their children called catechisms. And uh, in one catechism from the 16th century, um, this question is going to show up behind me, but where does this corrupt human nature come from? Why is it that we will die? Well, the answer to that is the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. This fall so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in a sinful condition. Death is not a natural part of our human experience. This is not what God intended life to be. But because of the fall, death is now entered into the picture. And notice that, if you can put that question back up there, it connects death with sin. And the Apostle Paul does that for us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, speaking of these initial events known as the fall. He says, therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So this brings us to the next part of Moses' lament, and it's this lament over sin. Death entered the world because sin entered the world, and the wages of sin is death, we read in the Bible. In verse 8, look at what, Moses says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And so what Moses is saying is that all of the sins that we have created, whether the ones that people know about or the ones that we work really hard to try and keep secret, God sees them all. And because of that, we're told that we're brought to an end by the wrath and anger of God. And it's not that God has wrath and anger towards us, but that he has wrath and anger towards our sin and disobedience. So before we make objections to this, I want to uh, refer us to another catechism. This is the New City Catechism. And uh, this question is to help us define our terms. What is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. Rebelling against him by living without reference to him. Not being or doing what he requires in his law. Resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. And so this is kind of a hard pill to swallow. For some of us who are Christians and for some of you that aren't Christians. Um, you, we might not be sure what, what we believe about Scripture or maybe that this is true about what God has said or, or that really maybe God's Bible isn't even our standard that we want to compare ourselves to. And a lot of times in life, we go through that and we try to make objections for ourselves. We try to compare ourselves to other people instead of comparing ourselves to God's standard. 
And so sometimes we try and say, well, maybe sin hasn't affected us. Well, instead of trying to compare ourselves to God's standards, what if we just try to compare ourselves to our own standards? So let's think about this for a minute. Are there any parents in the room? Where, where are my parents at? Look at look, a, a lot of you, right? Okay. So as a parent, one of the things that I try to establish for my kids is that they need to pick up after themselves. Anybody want their kids to do that? <laughs> Amen, right? Like, I live in a house with four kids, and if they don't pick up after themselves, it's a disaster area in a moment. And I know that some of you guys have more kids than that, and so I can only imagine. Okay? And so that's the standard that I want to set up for my household. But if I'm really honest, do I live up to that standard? What about those days when I'm tired from work and I just kick off my shoes right by the door when I come in and don't put them in the place where they belong? Or maybe I'm just tired at the end of the night and I want to put dishes in the sink instead of doing them. Do we live up to our standards that we set for our kids? I know I don't. Or what about, how many of you guys in here drive? Come on, let's just just go here with me for a minute, okay? So anybody ever get mad at somebody when they cut you off? Or like, who has to go through the spaghetti bowl at 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning? I'm one of those guys, and I tell you what, like there are days when I see that car whip around everybody until the very last moment, then cut in, and I'm like, what a jerk. I can't believe that guy would do that. But then the very next day, who's running late? This guy. And what do I do? The same exact thing, right? Like, I can't even live up to my own standards. Being a high school teacher, one of my favorites is that I have students that want to turn in work as late as possible. Okay, I know that there's some high school students in this room. I don't know if you guys turn in your work late or not. Okay, but my favorite is I'll have high school students turn in work three weeks late, and then the very next day they ask me, well, why haven't you put in the grade book yet? I'm like, well, well wait a minute. I'm going to take as much time to put in the grade book as you took getting it to me. Like, and so we set up these standards for ourselves, but we are not even able to keep them, right? We want other people to live up to our standards, but we can't even live up to our standards. One of the things that I always get on my wife about is being on time. If you guys know, my wife, she's not going to be on time next service. Like, let's just be honest. Okay, she's not going to be on time. And I'm one of those guys that I'm like, babe, we got to be on time. Like, we got to be on time. If you're not five minutes early, you're late, right? And and so uh, I I try and say that to her, and I'm, I'm always on time, right? No, I'm not always on time. I have those moments where I'm late. And so, like, these standards that we set up for ourselves, we can't even keep. And so Pastor Tim Keller says that if you were to just put a tape recorder around your neck and all it did was record the standards that you set up for yourself or somebody else, there's no way that you could live up to those standards. So how do we think that we can live up to God's standards? And so Moses is lamenting this because the fall affects us all. We all sin and we've all been sinned against. And so we experience suffering, pain. We watch people go through just horrific things sometimes. The fall permeates all that we are. Whether it's through relational discord, whether it's through watching a friend suffer through agony and pain and death, 
There's things like divorce and murder and abuse that happen all the time in our world. And so the fall affects us all. But there's hope in the midst of the fall. Look at verse 12. Moses says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So the first thing that Moses does is now he's turning to God and praying. And the first thing that he asks is that God would teach us to number our days. This is one of the lessons that we learn through the book of Ecclesiastes. The way that we can gain a heart of wisdom is by numbering our days, or as Pastor Kyle said often through the book of Ecclesiastes, living with the end in mind. Knowing that there is an expiration date on each one of our lives is sobering, but we often live as though it's not the case. Pastor and and preacher Charles Spurgeon, um, he says this, of all arithmetical rules, this is the hardest to number our days. Men can number their herds and droves of oxen and of sheep. They can estimate the revenues of their manors and farms. They can with little pains number and tell their coins, and yet they're persuaded that their days are infinite and innumerable, and therefore do never begin to number them. This is something that we have to be taught, church, and that's why Moses prays that we would be taught to number our days because it doesn't come natural to us. I think of the New Testament parable that Jesus tells of the man who he's saving up all of his money or all of his grain and stuff for retirement. He's even building bigger barns so that he can save even more. And then what happens? He dies and he never gets to enjoy any of it. We don't have an infinite number of days. We need to be present in the here and now, not living just for the future because the future is not guaranteed. Another theologian said it like this, to live with dying thoughts is the way to die with living comforts. And so then Moses turns his prayer. And in these last verses, Moses is going to pray for three things. He prays, for God's presence, for God's mercy, and for God's compassion. And so read these verses with me. First, in verse 13, he says, Return, O Lord. And there's this exclamation mark in this place where we stop because Moses is praying for God's presence to return to his people. Moses is somebody that had known the presence of God. God had walked with his people at one point in time. And so Moses is praying that God would return to his people. It's as if Moses is saying that we know because of our sin we will return to dust. So our only hope is that God would return to us. And so he's longing for God's presence for himself and for his people. And then he cries out, how long? And this is one of the common prayers that we see throughout the Psalms. And it's this lamenting cry, this agony. It's to the point where you're just at such a desperate place that you have nothing else in you but to ask, how long, Lord? How long do we have to endure this? How long is this going to happen? How long till you intervene and return, God, is what Moses is crying out. 
He's longing for God's presence, for his compassion and for his mercy sooner than later. And sometimes it feels like God is so far off. But he isn't here in the midst of us, in the midst of our suffering. And so we cry to God, how long till you come and you make yourself known? And it's good to know that we're in good company because Moses prays this and the other psalmists pray this. And so then the next line he says, have pity on your servants. He's asking for God's mercy upon his people. And mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. In the face of suffering and death, his cry is for mercy because he knows that he deserves the anger and wrath of God that he just talked about because he is a sinner. But he's asking God to not give him what he deserves, asking God not to give his people what they deserve. He's not trying to justify himself and saying, but I've been a really good person, God. He's saying, have mercy on me because that's the only hope that I have. And then finally, he's asking for God's compassion and he asks it in a couple of ways. He says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. In the midst of suffering, Moses is asking that he and his people would be able to rejoice. Amidst all the evil in this world that we would know God's goodness. He's asking God to show us your great work. Reveal it to our children. We want to know you and we want your presence and your power to be real, God. Have compassion upon us. And then finally in verse 17, he says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands We live this life in toil and trouble, and it's over before we know it. And if we want anything that we've done in this life to matter and to last, God has to be the one that establishes it for us. As quickly as we fade away, so will our work. And so Moses prays for the permanence of the work of God's people. This would be the goodness of God, that our work would last and that God would establish it. And so this is not just personal work, but our work even as a church. One of the things that as Living Stones we're saying is that we want to see a spiritual shift in the, or a shift in the spiritual climate of northern Nevada. And God doesn't have to do that at all. But if that does happen, it's only going to happen because God is the one that's establishing it and God's the one that's bringing it about. And so Moses prays boldly for God's presence, for his mercy, and for compassion. And it might seem contrary to what we read about up here when, when it says, we are brought to an end by your anger and by your wrath we are dismayed. And so it might seem contrary to those lines of the psalm when Moses asks for God to be compassionate, when Moses asks for God to be merciful. But God has revealed himself to Moses 
in such a way that he knows that he's not asking out of line right here. God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, and the verses are going to be here behind me. In Exodus 34, here's what God said to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. As God revealed himself to Moses, he revealed himself as one who is merciful, as one who is gracious, as one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and forgiving iniquity and sin. All the things that Moses is asking for, God said, that's who I am. Moses is counting on the fact that God just isn't this just and righteous ruler who is going to judge sin and who has wrath and anger on our disobedience, but that God is merciful and compassionate. Moses is counting on what God said about himself, that he forgives sin. And what's cool about that is Moses was exercising his faith towards God based on his words. But church, we have far more than the words of God. We have seen the actions of God. You see, Moses, God painted a picture towards Moses in Exodus 34, but he fully revealed it on the cross as he was dying for us in our place. Because God himself became a man. So he could die in our place. Because it was through that act that we received God's mercy and God's compassion. It's through that act that God's presence can be with us. And it was through that sacrifice that our sins are forgiven. You see, outside of Jesus dying on the cross for us, we will pass away in wrath and anger. But if we put our faith and trust in him and what he's done, then we can experience God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. Moses counted on what God said. We can count on what God has done. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, the words of Moses. And just the, the fact that we are brought to the truth that sin and death are a part of our lives and that the fall affects us all. But God, you have given us hope in the midst of the fall because of the person and work of Jesus. Help us, God, to trust in him, to look to him for mercy and grace and forgiveness, that you might do away with that wrath and anger that you have towards our sin because you put it on your son. Help us to find our dwelling place in you, God. we would run to you as our strong tower and be safe. In Jesus' name we pray.